1939, which, to be honest, was not the best time to be born a black man in America. But by all accounts, he was whip smart and an extremely hard worker. So he joined the Navy and aimed to make something of himself. He famously spun records on aircraft carriers and honed his skills with electronics so that by the time he was discharged, he was actually in pretty high demand. By all accounts, he was an absolute natural when it came to engineering. He was talented, he was willing to work hard, and he combined his love of music with technical talent to become Motown's premier engineer, pioneering vocal mixing processes that are still being used today. Horn was actually the chief engineer on the track My Girl. So if you're an American, I'm sure you've heard it. Yeah, it uh, sounds like a real success story. What makes something something? I don't I don't actually know the song, but I did see My Girl. You're not going to trick me into singing that oh, easy. Come on. Mike's a big Motown fan, by the way, guys. Anyway, uh, he was behind tracks by Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson, Diana Ross, and Stevie Wonder. Literally during the 60s and 70s, there was no one in higher demand or higher on life than Lawrence Horn. He was the Motown go-to engineer. Yeah, definitely. But as we all know, at least most Americans know that the good times couldn't last forever for Motown Records. If you don't live in the country, Motown Records was a record company that basically pumped out hit after hit after hit in the 60s and 70s and then by the time that 1990 rolled around was all but bankrupt and then as we all know the 90s and early 2000s were not great for the music industry yeah the whole period decline that's true so by 1990 horn had been laid off from his dream job at a company that he had helped build from nothing he had been divorced twice And his second wife had taken their three children and moved across the country from Los Angeles to Silver Spring, Maryland. Okay. Which is um, kind of a suburb of D.C. It's right on the border of D.C. and Maryland. And you can't buy alcohol in their grocery stores. You can't buy alcohol in their grocery stores. That's a travesty. By this point, (laughs) Horn was just scraping by. Things possibly could not get worse for him. He was... His wife left with a kid He's in his late 50s and just got laid off from his dream job, everything he's worked for. So, so yeah, he's, he's working freelance. He is behind on child support payments. And in 1993, he gets the news that his ex-wife, Mildred, and their eight-year-old son, Trevor, had been brutally murdered in their homes. Mildred had been shot point blank and Trevor had been suffocated. Trevor was actually extremely disabled and had a a live-in nurse who was there basically at all hours and she was she was murdered as well, shot point blank again. So, here's the twist. One week later, Lawrence Horn becomes the prime suspect for the murder of Janice Saunders. Trevor's nurse, Trevor Horn, and Mildred Horn. At the time, he was in Los Angeles on camera in his apartment, and they were across the country on the East Coast. Where were the other two kids? We'll find out. This is the murder 
of Trevor and Mildred Horn and Janice Saunders. I'm Natalie Levy. And I'm Michael Costa. And this is Detective Society. So in the early 60s, Lawrence Horn is working in Detroit under Barry Gordy Jr., who founded Motown. And if you've ever seen, what is that movie called with with Will Ferrell about Flint? Uh, Semi-pro. The semi-pro, the the really bad Will Ferrell movie that you like with Woody Harrelson. I love that movie. I don't care what anyone says. And Andre 3000. If you've ever seen Semi-pro, you know that Detroit was the place to be in the 60s and 70s. More so in the 60s. (laughs) That's true. It was actually nicknamed Hitsville, USA. And Motown was working with groups like the Temptations and the Supremes and taking the world by storm. This was also kind of, it was fostering this cultural revolution in the United States because Motown was mostly represented by African-American artists and was really kind of paving the way for future African-American artists like Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston, who would really be kind of central figures in music in the 80s. Um, So as we were saying earlier, their principal sound engineer was this guy, Lawrence, also known as L.T. Horn, who had cut his teeth mixing tracks actually while he was in the Navy. He was actually said to have been extremely talented and very, very hardworking, but also fiercely territorial over the studio. Actually, the the founder of Motown is quoted as saying about him, the only thing with him is that when you step into the studio, which was our studio, it became his studio. If you touch a piece of equipment, you're going to hell. I mean, he would go bananas. He would say, do you know what you're touching? Do you know what it does? Do you know why it does what it does? And he was saying these kind of things to the founder of the record company. Very so, condescendingly, I well, I'm I took it more as like passionate about what he was doing and about making great music. Doesn't does paint a great picture though. No, it does not. I, I don't care how passionate you well, are. I mean, I guess, you know, we have the favor of knowing that he's connected to a murder at this point. So, like any behavioral kind of things you told me about him, I would have looked at it through the lens of this guy might have killed people. You're jumping to a lot of uh, conclusions. I Michael. mean, so in 1972, Lawrence Horn is riding high. Uh, he's traveling first class. He's married to his first wife when he meets airline stewardess Mildred Marie. Oh, oh, man. By all accounts, he was instantly head over heels. He leaves his first wife. He marries Mildred. Actually, and hand to God, his first wife is on the record doing interviews talking about how great he is and how they stayed friends. They were lifelong friends. She was a character witness at his trial. Spoiler alert. He goes on trial. So, yeah, he's not... Well... I'm not going to say she's an accomplice or anything, because I don't know what happened. Oh, because you're still very suspicious. It's, it's a very odd story that he's across the country for some reason. Um, let's talk about Millie for a second. Okay. Mildred Horn. She is pretty freaking cool. She's one of these women who is like quintessentially spunky and self-possessed. Her older sister, I think her name was Doris. If, if I'm incorrect, please correct me. But I think her name was Doris. 
is quoted as saying that when they were kids, Millie saw an airline stewardess in a magazine and was basically from that day forward completely convinced that she was going to be a stewardess. And then she did it. She met her husband. They had one child together. Her name was Tiffany. But unfortunately, just a few years later in 1979, the marriage between Lawrence and Millie was really, really strained. She decided that she needed to relocate to Washington, D.C., which had been around where she'd grown up. Um, while Lawrence stayed in L.A. In 1981, Millie officially filed for divorce. And even though even though at the time you would assume that they would not want to be near each other, they were kind of on again, off again, because after Millie files for divorce, they have twins together. Oh, so yeah. this is an ongoing process. Named Tamil and Trevor. Yeah, exactly. So... Obviously, there was a lot of passion there. Obviously, they loved each other. They could not make it work. And we might see why a little bit later. It does not sound like Lawrence was a necessarily easy person to live with. Not an easy person to make music with, it sounds like, either. No, it doesn't sound like he was easy to live or work with, but that he was very talented and very smart. So, Tamil and Trevor, their twins, were actually born prematurely. After three weeks, Tamil was allowed to go home to her parents. Uh, they were not they. Millie was living in Silver Spring at the time. But Trevor would unfortunately have to stay at the hospital much longer. He was born with underdeveloped lungs and needed to be on life support. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, on September 16th, 1985, doctors were struggling to insert a tracheotomy tube into Trevor Horn's throat. I mean, he was he was so small. Yeah. Um, and they struggled for about an hour. He was already 13 months old, but he was very, very undersized. And the severe lack of oxygen combined with their inability to reinsert the tube meant that Trevor had basically been left a quadriplegic. Oh, man. He hadn't been getting oxygen to his brain, and the trauma from the tube insertion had left him severely, severely disabled. After what happened with Trevor and the years and years of... A volatile relationship. Of a volatile relationship, Million Horn just couldn't make it work. And I'm I'm not surprised. Their son almost died. Their bond was already really, really weak. So Horn moves back to LA. In 1987, their divorce goes through. Due to the negligence of the hospital, the Horns were awarded a $2 million yeah. settlement. Okay. The bulk of which went into a trust for Trevor for his long-term care. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Millie was awarded $250,000 and Lawrence was awarded $125,000. So all of this is kind of going to play a part a little bit later. Seems like an odd distinction. It does seem like an odd distinction. I couldn't really tell what was going on other than that Millie had custody of the children. And so there might have been some kind of issue where the burden on her would be heavier, especially if she wasn't working in order to care for her disabled child. 
Which would lead me to question then why Lawrence got anything unless it was a situation where he was getting money for pain and suffering. So this is now 1988. Motown has been on the decline for almost 10 years and it is sold to MCA for $61 million. MCA does not think highly of Lawrence Horn. He goes from being the principal engineer on basically all the music that was being made by Motown uh-huh. to being a tape librarian for MCA. They kind of just shoved him in the basement for two years. And when he became so irritable that he could no longer be controlled in 1990, they just fired him. He wasn't making music. He wasn't creating. He was basically just taking a check and filing tapes in the basement, and they sent him packing. Sounds like they kind of forced him out by putting him down there. It's not like they didn't have any intention of wanting him around in the first place. That's what it sounded like to me. And he was working for a failing brand, so, I mean, he's definitely got some some fault there for the downfall of Motown if he's, a, if he's engineering all their stuff. So too. that's something else as well is that he's the principal engineer so it's not like he's contributing to any positive net growth, right? Yeah. In the spring of 1992, after he'd been working freelance for about two years, Lawrence decides to go back to Detroit. He visits a cousin and it's very clear to his whole family that he is struggling. Um, his mother would give statements later on about kind of the dire straits he was in. He would need to borrow money from her, who herself had to borrow money from actually a cousin who was an actor on A Different World. Okay. <laughs> which is a random kind of tangential relationship. So he's going on, he's, he's getting to be about 60 at this point in time. He's getting to be about 60. It's a really rough time in your he's life. Borrowing money from his mom. The whole situation is really kind of horrible because he's also, he owes Millie about $16,000 in child support. Yeah, okay, and back child support. So it's the spring of 1992. He turns up at his cousin Thomas Turner's door and basically tells him the whole story about how he's overdue on child support payments. He is living in this tiny apartment with his girlfriend. He has no money to speak of, and he had no access to that almost $2 million trust fund in Trevor's name. So Turner, in kind of a very shady turn of events, and I'll I'll talk a little bit more about Thomas Turner in just a minute, gives him the business card for a man named James Edward Perry who is listed as a quote-unquote spiritual advisor. James Edward Perry is actually a super shady, gross character. He is one of these guys who refers to himself as like a fixer, like whatever your problem is, like oh, yeah. I'll fix it, which is like not a job. Sorry, friend, but like that's not a thing that ever, it doesn't seem above board to me. Well, He's a fixer, though. doesn't matter. Yeah. He'll just fix it. Okay. But no, he's actually a spiritual guider. Yeah, he he calls himself a spiritual advisor. Advisor. He advises on spirituality. Oh, obviously, because he seems like such a spiritual character. Also, three names. So here's what I do not buy for one minute. Okay. Thomas Turner goes on to claim 
that he had no idea what the nature of Perry and Horn's relationship would be, that he had, he quote unquote had his suspicions, but that after Horn's family turns up murdered, he basically told them, don't involve me in your business anymore. I'm not going to set up these rendezvous for you. I'm not going to be your messenger because they were they were basically sending messages through this guy, Thomas Turner. Yeah. Horn would call his cousin Thomas and then Thomas would call his friend Perry. I don't buy it. It that, smells fishy to me. That cousin Tommy doesn't know what's going on? I don't believe that he doesn't know what's going on and I think he should have gone to the police and I think he knew and that he was culpable in what would happen in just a moment. So in the summer of the same year, Horn goes to DC to visit his daughter Tiffany. He has a very strained relationship with Mildred at this point. Custody is a little bit unclear, but he does a couple very, very strange things. Number one, he rents a van with a video camera mounted to it and has a running tape of the routes in and out of where Mildred lives, the front of her house, how to get into the house, how to get out of that area, how to make it back into downtown DC. And then he asks Tiffany, who's a little bit older than the other kids, to videotape Trevor because he doesn't have access to Trevor. He hasn't seen him in a very long time. Uh-huh. Trevor is at this point eight years old and basically bound to his crib. Yeah. Because he, he can't move. He can't feed himself. He's also mentally disabled. Saying that he wanted to show the video to his family back in Detroit. Fine. This is your dad. Like, what, what What? would I say if my dad asked me to do something weird like that? I, I don't know. Um, I, I know that sh- it must be just, like, a really difficult situation to be in. Yeah, it's definitely worrying and creepy. I mean, I, I don't know if you question it, but you definitely question it after the fact. Oh, God, yeah. So at the same time as... Horn is doing all this kind of weird reconnaissance work in D.C., visiting his family. Well, he's surveilling his family while visiting them. Surveilling is a very good way to put that behavior. It's like a really dark Mrs. Doubtfire, where instead of, like, being a maid, he's just, like, you know... On stakeout. Creepily watching. Like, just take that movie and instead of all the scenes of Robin Williams, is the maid, just have him in a van watching. But he passed away, so we'll never get that pleasure. But still dressed as a woman with a prosthetic nose. Now that's ridiculous. (laughs) Um, So now bear with me, folks, because it's about to get a lot crazy. At the same time that Horn is doing all of his research, James Edward Perry is back in Detroit doing some research of his own. He buys this book called Hitman, colon. Get the fuck out. I, no technical. way. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> no way. Hitman, colon, a technical manual for independent contractors. So clearly this guy is a professional. I... I don't know. I, this is, I don't know. His business card must be like J.E. Perry. Well read. <laughs> okay. 
This is bonkers, bananas, like crazo nuts. I assume the Detroit Public Library didn't have that one. They did not. In fact, it is very difficult to find. So I'm, I'm going to be honest. Oh, we're going to yeah. learn about the book? Everyone, um, I did some research. No, Natalie. I am definitely on some list somewhere. <laughs> like, if you could see my Google searches, <laughs> I I am definitely, def- there's like an NSA file that's like, people who Googled this weird book. And I'm on that list. So. It's just metadata. It'll be fine. I did some research. You can't find physical copies of this book anymore. You can't, like, go to your library and check it out. You can't order it off Amazon. So what I found was a PDF of of the book. Oh, you, you actually got the PDF. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I got it. And it's, like, a fucking doozy, y'all. Number one, it's actually really, really disgusting and gross. It's written in, like, this overly macho tone that makes you really question how secure that author was. Um, or if that author is just full of crap. So, yeah, because he's, he's written like a 13-year-old on Reddit. Like a 13-year-old pretending to be a professional hitman on Reddit who's basically like making it up as he goes along. I think there's a Kevin Smith. Is that his name? No, Kevin James. Call Blart Mallcop. Kevin James, yes. He has a new show or movie that is this idea where he fakes being like a hitman and then real hitmen come for him. No, he I doesn't. I swear is to God. I don't know what it's called, but it's new. Okay. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and believe you. I don't believe him, everyone. Just FYI. Um, so it's also written in such a way that I would, I would honestly think that no one would ever take it seriously. So, for instance... One ridiculous portion of the book is titled Making a Reluctant Victim Talk. And I'm going to go ahead and read you an excerpt from this book. Oh, boy. Where's the popcorn? I'm going to try to keep it as professional as possible, but it I it's disgusting. I would just like to say a disclaimer. I agree with nothing written in this book. It is gross. It is horrifying. And I don't think anyone should waste their time reading it. I wish I had the minutes of my day back that I spent reading this garbage. I had the opportunity to accompany a master of persuasion a few years ago. Although small in stature, this full-blooded Indian barf, like gross, He's also going to refer to this guy as the Indian for the rest of this time. Okay. This full-blooded Indian was ruthless in obtaining the information he came for. The mark was a much larger man, outweighing the Indian by more than 80 pounds. With my help, we subdued the giant, stripped him to the waist, and tied him to a wooden armchair. Sounds like a pretty good time so far. Wink, wink. Barf. Okay. Talk, ordered the Indian. Silence. The Indian pulled an ice pick from his pocket. The giant looked at the point of the pike. It appears to be a typo in the PDF. To the Indian, and then to me, as if begging for my intervention. I just shrugged my shoulders in a helpless gesture. And then he goes on to detail how this random dude was tortured by this other dude with an ice pick. 
So it was a fun read. Other sections were titled things like homemade silencers, explosives, arson, using your bare hands, and dealing with poisons. Oh, and then the fucking cherry on top of this garbage cake is an entire chapter on how to kill a dog. Like, fuck off, dude. Who are you? You're disgusting. I don't feel safe around you anymore. You know all this sensitive <laughs> hitman information. Oh, yeah. And if um, the example that we're pulling from, James Edward Perry, is anything like me, obviously, a genius, a beautiful genius who does their research, I'm definitely going to get away with it. Now, here's a question that unfortunately I don't know the answer to. Does the hitman's book, colon whatever it was you said the name was does it have one of those uh, parts in the back with like the author's picture where they're like in like a turtleneck and his arms are crossed and it's like hitman author a little blurb about him or I couldn't tell you because again I couldn't find a physical copy so there's, there's no byline copy. but if it did my it, assumption is that it wouldn't have okay. he wouldn't be wearing a turtleneck he would be wearing like a wife beater and like Holding a four a loco. face tattoo? Oh, holding a four loco. Oh, he would definitely be doing that. And so there also wasn't like a, what's the word I'm looking for? When you write a book for someone? An epitaph? Oh my God, I think it wasn't dedicated wasn't, to anyone. It was dedicated. Damn it, why didn't I? Oh, it was something about like, this is for the bold. This is for the dreamers. Barf. It was so bad. I just want to reiterate again, this is a gross book. Don't look it up. It is a waste of it's, time. It, well, it's, it's a waste of getting on the watch list. Well, yeah. And honestly, like even if you do want to be a hitman, which is disgusting and awful, don't waste your time with this book. It is ridiculous. I would see disagree with that advice. Definitely get this book, guys. Because listen, you see, they'll get caught now and there'll be less hitmen. It's, it's better for the society. You know what? Your your logic is spot on. We are way off track, though. Okay. Anyway. So Perry buys this book. He reads it cover to cover. It's a real page turner, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And it's oh so good. Um, and on March 2nd, 1993, he approaches the home of Mildred Horn. So he's been in contact with Lawrence this entire time. He's got all of Lawrence's juicy intel. Yep. <laughs> all that sweet, sweet intel. Um, they've been basically planning this for a year. He approaches the home. I also I just want to give a quick warning to the listeners. We're about to talk about the murder of a disabled child. It is extremely unsettling. If you're sensitive, feel free to skip the next minute or so. But what this guy, Perry, does is horrific and despicable. And, like, I it's, I know that we're making light of his process, but he's a horrible murderer. So Perry sneaks in through the basement window. He, it's unclear. Thank you, Rusty. Yeah, thanks, Rust. It's unclear where he meets Mildred. Um, They believe that she was his first victim. Uh, Her body was found at the... You down there? 
You done, buddy? Maybe he's trying to tell you he doesn't want to hear that minute. That yeah, probably. He's very sensitive. Um, it's just a puppy. So they find Mildred's body at the base of the stairs. She's been basically shot point blank in the head three times with one bullet traveling through her right eye. He then goes upstairs undetected to the nursery where Trevor and his nurse Janice Saunders are sleeping. He bursts into the room, shoots Saunders twice at close range, once in the left eye. So this is one of these like little clues that investigators find because according to this book, Hitman, shooting someone at close range in the eyes is a certain way to ensure a quick death. I don't know if that's true. It really does feel like a teenager watched a lot of Boondock Saints one weekend and had a bunch of like bottles of surge. Yeah. And crank this guy out and put it um, on the early internet. The book, however, does not go into detail on how to murder a young disabled child. Oh, man, they had to cut that. So I said that he smothered Trevor, but what he does is actually a lot more graphic and gruesome. He places one hand over the tracheostomy opening um, where... Trevor is connected to a ventilator and the other hand over his nose and mouth. I I struggle to connect with a human being who could so intimately murder a small child. Like a completely defenseless baby. Who who does that? And who who hire someone to do that to their son to their child like these people are fucking sick and then and then as he's leaving the house he calls Lawrence Horn and because he's such a spectacular genius he leaves a recorded message on Horn's answering machine not it, he doesn't like cop to the whole thing on the vo- voicemail. No, but it's very suspicious. He basically just says, he says, I couldn't take a picture of him. He made some noises. And then that's the end of the phone call. But what business does he have calling this guy who's he, he's not even supposed to know and leaving a message like that? Future hitmen, just so you know, don't leave recorded messages. It's it's just a bad idea. Don't skip chapters in the whatever hitman book you, you choose from Barnes and Noble. So authorities contact Horn, and literally a week after their bodies are discovered, things start unraveling. A flight attendant who worked with Millie contacted the Montgomery County Police and told them that Mildred had fears that her ex-husband would literally try to kill her. On March 12th, along with the videotapes that Horn made, police seized computers, audio cassettes, computer disks, and a bunch of other evidence that they had found in his apartment. They had receipts that showed Horn had made several trips between Maryland and Detroit, where Perry lived. And then there was the phone call that Horn made to Mildred the night of the murders. So this is what happened with the other kids. Horn calls Millie to make sure that the other kids would not be in the house so that 
only Trevor, his nurse, and Millie are murdered. So police find it extremely suspicious that Horn would call just to check on the whereabouts of his other two children right before the slayings. This is kind of where alarm bells start going off for them. Like, no, we we need to start looking into it and why they seize a bunch of property of his. Obviously, it's clear what Horn's motive for the crime was. He was completely broke and he stood to gain $2 million. Hold on, I gotta call timeout real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They seized a bunch of equipment. Mm -hmm. He's paying a hitman, presumably. Mm -hmm. With what money? The deal that they had struck was that when Horn got access to the funds in that trust, that he would pay out a percentage to Perry. So, like, all these trips back and forth and the surveillance stuff, like, that's all borrowing oh. from his mom and his mom's friends? Yeah. He borrowed, by the way, guys, he borrows $60,000. From his mom's from friends. From his mother who does not have the money. Who's running around borrowing it from other people. You know, you tried to make me like this guy when you started the show by telling me he produced my girl. It was very tricky of you because he is just utter scum. He's awful. And I feel like there's this picture of him that gets painted where, like, he was a super talented producer who was just down on his luck. And the more and more research that I did into this, the more and more that I was like, this is the wrong picture. This guy is garbage. So it's clear what Horn's motive for the crime is, but basically all the evidence that they were able to amass was like kind of circumstantial. They knew that he was moving around in the right places at the right time. They knew that he was paying for certain things, but they couldn't really like hit the nail in the head of putting him in connection with that crime. again Because the cops don't have Perry yet. Yeah, he was in Los Angeles at the time. Also, because this crime kind of is orchestrated across three different locations, Los Angeles, Detroit, Maryland, yeah. and Detroit, the Montgomery Police Department doesn't really have the jurisdiction to go in to these other locations and do some in-depth investigation. So the FBI becomes involved and launch a full-scale investigation into Horn's movements, the money that was sent back and forth, and then his communications before, during, and after the murders. This is where they discover Perry and the fact that he didn't even, like, buy this book with cash in a bookstore. He had to special order it. Oh, God. Okay. But still, like... (laughs) Yeah. So this is where they find out about Perry and then the fact that he buys this Hitman book. Now... (laughs) Because Perry is following a clearly fictional book's advice on how to literally murder people, he left little tiny indicators all over the place. That the guy who read that book was the one who tried to do this. Exactly. So police found 22 different points of correlation between the advice given in the book and evidence at the crime scene. I don't know how to express enough what a fucking idiot I believe this guy is. July 19th, 1994. So the murders happened in 93. It's not until 1994 after a 16-month FBI investigation that Perry and Horn are arrested in Detroit and L.A. respectively. It's not until 1996 
that they're sentenced and put away. So both are found guilty. Perry dies in prison. Uh, I believe he was serving three life sentences. And Horn is still in prison serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. James Edward Perry, easily the most hateable character in this whole saga, gave his statement after the trial saying, and I hate the way that this guy speaks, it's really the worst. The finders of fact found me guilty and have imposed the death penalty. But I stand before you this evening and say, I had nothing to do with these crimes. I am innocent and I will continue to fight the good fight. I hate this guy. Well, he's a murderer. Well, yeah, also he's a murderer. So Perry's convicted of shooting the women and smothering the little boy. Horn is convicted of murder and conspiracy to commit murder, I believe. So according to one statement, these guys spend two years planning these murders. Horn leaves behind two very young children, Tiffany and Tamil. He's sentenced to life and not to death, according to the jury forewoman, because he had useful skills, a death sentence could adversely affect his two surviving children, and because he showed kindness and generosity in the past to some family members. Sounds like solid logic to me. This piece of garbage is still alive. I want to take a minute to talk about kind of like the unsung victim in this. This woman, Janice Saunders, who was just working as a nurse. The, the yeah, the bystander, he decided it was okay to die, not his children. Yeah. She was a wife and a mother to a four-year-old at the time. Her husband, Michael Saunders, is... Not is, he was extremely outspoken about how unsatisfied he was with the entire process. He told the media that he was not allowed to read his entire victim's impact statement because he wanted to argue to the jury that Horn and Perry should receive the death penalty, but the judge told him that that would be too cruel to allow him to say those things to the jury. On the other hand... Both Horn and Perry were allowed multiple character witnesses who spoke to the jury on their behalf. Michael Saunders was quoted as saying, I will never forget the way that my son and I have been treated during the last three years by the system, which works in favor of criminals. This like this guy is, sounds like he loved his wife and she was just doing her job yeah. and they were both caught in a horrible situation orchestrated by two pieces of literal human garbage. So after all that, I think that one of the most interesting kind of aspects of this crime is not the fates of these two dumpster fires, Horn and Perry, but the fallout for Paladin Press, who published the Hitman book. Wait, okay. Go on. So I mentioned earlier that you can't get physical copies of this book. Yeah. You can't buy it in a bookstore. You can't buy it on Amazon. So it's not Prime. You can't buy it on Kindle. And actually here, what I'm going to do is... Don't look it up again. No, 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 no. I'm going to look it up on Amazon 
because it's really interesting um, what they describe the reason for it not being available, available is. Well, good guy Amazon explaining to you why they don't have things. I just, uh, this whole case is ridiculous. Yeah. So it's ca- on Amazon, this book by, oh my God. Wait, there's a byline? Oh God, no, the author's name. Yeah, a byline, what is it? His name is Rex Farrell. Yeah, it's, I mean, first of all, I'm sure chapter one is use a fake name when you write a book about being a hitman. Chapter two. Oh my God. Okay. Under the description it says, Rex Farrell kills for hire. Daring, unafraid, professional. Now he dares to tell his professional secrets. This is amazing writing, everyone. So on Amazon, it's listed as item under review. The book is currently unavailable because there are significant quality issues with the source file supplied by the publisher. The publisher has been notified and we will make the book available as soon as we receive the corrected file. As always, we value customer feedback. Um, come on, Amazon. Oh my God, this guy's written other books. Oh, Rex Farrell. He has also written a book called Secrets of an Assassin. Wait, he's a hitman and an assassin? He had a dual degree? Oh, jeez. What do you think his student debt's like? Oh, God, probably crippling. That's why he's got to pump out all these... Probably deadly. I hate you. I hate you. Anyway. Okay, so... Paladin Press is sued after this. And they end up paying out a bunch of money to the families of the victims. And then they pull all of these books. They pull this book. Yeah. They don't sell it anymore. Not because it's dangerous to the public, but because Paladin didn't want to leave themselves open to any kind of liability again and have to settle. Well, obviously. The book's going to sell. Why would you get rid of it just because it's dangerous to the public? It sells. How do these people find each other? Who? Uh, all of these pieces of garbage. The publishing company, Rex, publishing Rex company, Farrell. Rex Farrell, James Edward Perry, Lawrence Horn. What's the linchpin in this story? The one we have to come back to for a second, I think. Was it Cousin Tommy or Cousin Johnny? Oh my God. Thomas Turner. I just, cause that I. That guy knew something. For, for me, here's the, the picture that's painted. You know, it comes, your cousin rolls in, he's way down in his luck. He's got tons of anger issues. He gets drunk with you guys, gets super angry. And you remember hearing about this guy up the block who's a fixer. He gets things done. He knows how to take care of things. This guy in the meantime is a real low end con man who's also broke. And here comes this other guy who's like, I got some money online, like 60 grand I stole basically from my mom and her church friends. Kill someone for me. He's like, I can do that. I totally know how to do that. I've done it before, hundreds of times. Goes out, buys the book. The rest is, uh, you know, a really sad, upsetting story. Do you have a uplifting note for us to take us away on? Or is today all just sadness and darkness, Natalie? Honestly, I'll be honest with you guys. I had a hard time recording this episode in the beginning. Um, it's December 27th. Carrie Fisher passed away today. It's just been kind of an all-around garbage day, capping off an all-around garbage year. We're talking about, like, the worst kind of despicable people in the world. 
locally here in D.C., it was a pretty violent Christmas season. Um, well, it's a series of murders, yeah. There's been a, yeah, there's been kind of like this horrible series of murders. <sighs> Maybe I'm murdered out for a while. How about next next episode, guys? We're just going to talk about something really fun. We'll talk about a fictional murder. Oh, that might be interesting. You know, like, uh, I can't think of any. Like from a book or something? From anything. From Poirot? Sure. You. I mean, oh, you want to look at an episode on, like, <laughs> from a detective show. So really not getting that far away from... I was thinking of something, much, a much more lighthearted murder. Oh, okay. Like from a cartoon or something oh. far less Wait, who's intense. getting murdered on cartoons? <laughs> You know, Buckley, King of the Hill. Who blew up Megalomart, oh man? Oh, my God, you're right. Buckley does die. Spoiler uh, alert, everyone, on a 20-year-old cartoon. The South Park episode where Barb Brady can't read, and there's that guy murdering people. The murderer that almost kills Carmen when he's a psychic. There you go. I'm thinking of go. the prince going. Okay, we'll well, get a lighthearted I'll, episode in there. How about this, dear, sweet, beautiful listeners? Um, why don't you tweet at us at the detective pod on Twitter and let us know what fictional murder we may or may not cover next week. This is all going to get thrown out the window when Natalie comes across a really interesting murder. Oh, I already know what I'm going to talk about next week. (laughs) (laughs) But write us on Twitter anyway. Yeah, write write us on Twitter anyways. I'm honestly not opposed to doing a mini episode on fictional murders. Um, You can always tweet at us at the detective pod on Twitter. uh, If you are a little bit more bashful about listening to super serious murder podcasts, you can email us at detective societypod at gmail.com um as always please 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 rate and review um right now we are up to like i think like eight whole ratings eight i know that's how popular we are god at this pace next year we'll be up to like 80 wait can you break down that math no i did the math you oh you did the math i did the math okay um so as always thanks again for listening we really really appreciate it have a good new year guys have a good new year be fun be safe stay safe don't let me talk about you on this podcast just how about for next week no one get murdered okay yeah a week off from death yeah there there you go all right stay safe and may the force be with you Ooh, ooh, ooh.